My name is Dr. Tram Jones, and since 2019, my wife and I have been living in Haiti. This is the story of our life there and the patients we've seen. It was August 2019. Hannah and I found ourselves in the back of a Toyota Land Cruiser, bouncing up the gravel mountainside that passed for a road in this section of Haiti. We were headed to the community of Bouconboye. At this time, Hannah and I were still living in the United States. We knew, however, that we would be moving to Haiti within a few months. This trip would serve as our final test trip before the big move. Outside of scouting for a house, I had another objective. Our clinic was located on the outskirts of the city of Quadibouquet. Quadibouquet is a city of 280,000 residents. But our most important work was in the mountains that surrounded the city. In Haiti, the poorest of the poor live in the highlands. Here there is less crime, but there are essentially no services. The land is denuded of trees and nutrients and filled with sharp cliffs. There are often no clinics and no pharmacies. On this trip, I wanted to get an idea of the health of the children in these areas in which the clinic served. And so, Hannah and I were climbing higher and higher on a summer day, accompanied by Dr. Donald and two American physicians. The nonprofit we work for supports the tuition and health of 200 children in the mountains. We were going to perform annual well-child checks on these kids. At the same time, we were going to perform a standardized survey of the health of mountain families, and particularly their children. We doctors settled into the schoolhouse and started seeing children. After examining them, we asked the mothers basic questions. How many brothers and sisters does this child have? Where did you give birth? Did you breastfeed? We tried to cushion the inevitable awkwardness of personal questions, but there was no better way to get a sense of a community in lieu of door-to-door interviews. Most of the children were healthy, so we had time to spend with the parents and ask these questions. Just a few patients into the day, a young 10-year-old shyly walked up. What is your name, I asked. Merson, he said, looking down and refusing to make eye contact in the manner that I often find in children from the mountains. How many brothers and sisters does Merson have, I asked his mother. His mother was a short woman, quick in her responses. Unlike her son, she made eye contact with me. He doesn't have any brothers and sisters, she told me matter-of-factly. Okay, sounds good. How many brothers and sisters of his have died? This is a standard question I was using to gauge the death rate of children in the area. Eight, she said. All eight had died. He is the only one left. I was stunned. I was still a full-blooded American, never having lived out of the U.S. I couldn't imagine anyone uttering these words. This was one of those moments when it really struck me how different working in Haiti was going to be from my practice in the United States. I gathered myself and asked Mirson's mother how each child had died and, and at what age. She relayed to us that like clockwork, each of her children had developed swelling in the first few years of life. This is a sure sign of malnutrition called kwashiorkor. And then, after a few weeks, some developed shortness of breath, others developed fever, but all had died. The rest of that day and the next held similar conversations, but none as tragic as that one. The other doctors and I huddled at the end of the two days of surveying. Most of the families we talked to had lost children, at least one. We were exhausted from the travel and crush of 200 patients. Now we would just need to crunch the numbers. Over the next two months, I played around with the numbers, using R to calculate accurate statistics. Finally, I had numbers to give us an idea of the health in mountain communities. The number one most important statistic we were searching for was an estimate of under-5 mortality. This is the number of deaths under the age of 5 
per a certain number of live births. In the U.S., we can pretty definitively know this. Almost every birth and death is recorded in the county vital records. In certain parts of Haiti, though, essentially none of these are reliably recorded. Everyone dies or is born at home. By asking about the children of each mother, we could calculate a proportion of children that had died before the age of five. In both communities we surveyed, this rate was slightly above 180 deaths per 1,000 live births. Let's put that into layman's terms. Roughly, this means that a little over 18% of children were dying before the age of five. 18%? In the U.S., that number is 0.7%. Just imagine a typical elementary school in the States with 100 kindergartners. To put this in perspective, this would mean that 20 of those children would have died sometime from birth to kindergarten. The single most shocking statistic was that 63% of women had lost at least one child. 63%? Think about your closest 10 friends who are mothers. Imagine if more than 6 out of 10 of those had lost a child after birth. And what were these children dying of? Well, it was actually very hard to find out, as I realized after examining the first few children. Essentially, all the children had died at home. After all, the hospital was a good 5-6 to hours of travel away. And so, I got a smattering of different responses. The only diseases mothers could reliably identify was diarrhea. Diarrhea had caused 32% of the deaths. This is in line with what we expected. Over and over again, in poor countries, diarrhea is shown to be a leading cause of death. A little over a half million children die each year from diarrhea worldwide. The cycle is disturbingly easy to understand. Children are born to parents with poor nutrition who struggled to breastfeed their child. The child becomes slightly malnourished. Thus, their immune system is poor and they have little bodily reserves to fight off infection. This makes them susceptible to diarrhea, particularly from contaminated water. Then, that very same bout of diarrhea makes them lose more weight and they become more malnourished with a worse immune system, which makes them more susceptible to diarrhea, which finally leads to their death. After diarrhea, there were a surprising quantity of accidental deaths, about 21% of all children that died. Most of these were drownings, which was surprising in a country as dry as Haiti. But, as anyone who lives in Haiti knows, there is little middle ground between drought and surging rivers. When it rains, there are flash floods and the water rises precipitously. Children are generally not taught to swim, especially those that grow up in the mountains. But even aside from drownings, there were a surprising number of other ways that children died. One fell into boiling water. I had encountered a similar case over a decade ago in Peru when a child had fallen into a pot of boiling water. I guess fortunately, few children in the U.S. are susceptible to this because pots are generally small and not made over an open flame. Outside of this survey, one of my friends had a nephew die from a tree falling on him. Life is hard in Haiti. Parents work all day in the fields and markets. There is no daycare in the mountains. Often older children are tasked with the oversight of the younger children, and catastrophe can strike. Aside from diarrhea, fever, and accidents, there were a number of mothers who stated that the child died of witchcraft. What surprises me most after living in Haiti is not that the mothers believed this, but that they would admit this belief to a foreign doctor. I can guarantee you that if a person from the village was asking these questions, they would have had a higher percentage. It is very common for parents to believe a child died from a werewolf or an evil spirit. In the absence of doctors and scientific thinking, I have found that people seek meaning about the death of a child. To see the world as a battle between good and evil. An enemy sending a curse on the face of it, 
makes much more sense than a bacterium so small that it cannot be seen randomly attacking a child. To me, it is an attempt to make order out of the world. Most of the children that died, died in the first year of life, actually 55% of children. It is such a vulnerable time. If we, clinically Spati Moon, the doctors, nurses, and the parents can help stave off malnutrition and death until 12 months and, and really preferably two years, the child will have a good chance of living till adulthood. The death of children is a terrible subject, but it must not be so terrible that we refuse to think about it. 18% of children dying before the age of five is a tragedy. If it were happening in our community, or even in our nation, we would be galvanized into action. 63% of mothers suffering the loss of a child, we can't really wrap our minds around this. But for places in the world, mostly rural, mountainous, and forgotten, these are the realities. And there's a reason that it's so easy to ignore them. These are places that are hard to see, even harder to get to. These levels of tragedy are often not seen in the capital cities of poor countries, even of Haiti. It is in the forests of the Congo, the mountains of Afghanistan, and the little hamlets of rural Haiti. But just because we can't see it doesn't make it any less real. Thank you for listening. Every Wednesday morning, we publish a new narrative from life here. We are simply telling stories as we've seen them in Haiti. But Haiti is a fascinating country with a rich history, and there are many Haitian voices that can tell the story of Haiti in all its facets, and we encourage you to seek them out. As we made this episode, some names may have been changed to protect confidentiality. If you enjoyed the show, tell your friends or give us a rating wherever you find your podcasts. To learn more about the work of Light from Light in Haiti or to get involved, visit us on the web at lightfromlight.me. Thank you and God bless.